When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, Old West fans. This is your host, John Hagedorn. I'm looking for a new host, so get in touch with me at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. That's 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. I do have a great story for you to fill in for a good while here, and it's written by one of my favorite old-time Western writers. His name was Zane Gray. I've done a few of his fishing stories over at 1001 Stories for the Road, and they're great, by the way, and some of his old-time baseball stories at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, which are all in the top 50 over there. Our listeners of all ages and backgrounds apparently love Zane Gray. His best and most read books were mostly about the Old West, and I wanted to share Roping Lions in the Grand Canyon with you. Maybe you did some dangerous things when you were young, but I can't think of many things more risky than putting a loop around the neck of a mountain lion and that's what some men did for a sport years ago. Zane Gray wrote about it, and here's the story. Hope you enjoy it. Introduction. Roping Lines in the Grand Canyon. Harper and Brothers, New York, 1924. Introduction. To the Boy Scouts of America and readers of this book. In bringing out this volume, Roping Lines in the Grand Canyon, I wish to make clear the fact that this is a story of my actual experiences with Buffalo Jones, the last of the plainsmen. My boy readers will doubtless find some of the material familiar, for in my book, The Young Lion Hunter, I incorporated many of the incidents in the adventures of Ken Ward. That was fiction. This is the true story. I'm hoping that it may influence boys to a keener love and appreciation of all the wonderful outdoors of their native land. Every boy has a heritage. It is outdoor America. Our open country, that is to say, our uncultivated lands, forests, preserves, feeding and nesting swamps, are threatened by the march of so-called progress and commercialism. What is needed is two million Boy Scouts to save some of our green, fragrant, untrammeled land for the boys to come. The Scout movement is one of the most splendid developments of young America. Through it, the future generations will learn how to fare in the outdoors, and will study the great lessons that nature teaches. To love hikes and camps and horses and dogs. To seek the wild creatures with more desire to study them than to kill. To learn to accomplish with the hands. To meet difficult situations that arise. To endure pain and privation. To cultivate strength of body and simplicity of mind. These are the things that make a good scout. So, 
in putting out this volume of Roping Lines in the Grand Canyon. It is with the hope that its readers will find more than merely entertainment between its covers, that the stories of lions and wild horses and deer, the descriptions of wonderful forest land and rugged grandeur of canyons, and particularly the memory of that strange and remarkable man, Buffalo Jones, preserver of the American bison, and a great plainsman, will generate the impulse which may help to preserve our great outdoors for future generations. Zane Gray, Spring, 1924. And now Chapter 1 of Roping Lines in the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon of Arizona is over 200 miles long, 13 wide, and a mile and a half deep, a titanic gorge in which mountains, tablelands, chasms, and cliffs lie half-veiled in purple haze. It is wild and sublime, a thing of wonder, of mystery, beyond all else a place to grip the heart of a man, to unleash his daring spirit. On April 20th, 1908, after days on the hot desert, my weary party and pack train reached the summit of Powell's Plateau, the most isolated, inaccessible, and remarkable mesa of any size in all the canyon country. Cut off from the mainland, it appeared insurmountable, standing aloof from the towers and escarpments, rugged and bold in outline, its forest covering like a strip of black velvet, its giant granite walls gold in the sun. It seemed apart from the world, haunting with its beauty, isolation, and wild promise. The members of my party harmoniously fitted the scene. Buffalo Jones, burly-shouldered, bronze-faced, and grim, proved in his appearance what a lifetime on the plains could make of a man. Emmett was a Mormon, a massively built, gray-bearded son of the desert. He had lived his life on it. He had conquered it, and in his falcon eyes shone all its fire and freedom. Ranger Jim Owens had the wiry, supple body and careless, tidy garb of the cowboy, and the watchful gaze, quiet face, and locked lips of the frontiersman. The fourth member was a Navajo Indian, a copper-skinned, raven-haired, beady-eyed desert savage. I had told Emmett to hire someone who could put the horses on grass in the evening and then find them the next morning. In northern Arizona, this required more than genius. Emmett secured the best trailer of the desert Navajos. Jones hated an Indian, and Jim, who carried an ounce of lead somewhere in his person, associated this painful addition to his weight with the unfriendly Apache. While we were pitching camp among magnificent pine trees, and above a hollow where a heavy bank of snow still lay, a sodden pounding in the turf attracted our attention. "'Hold the horses!' yelled Emmett. As we all made a dive among our snorting and plunging horses, the sound seemed to be coming right into camp. In a moment I saw a string of wild horses thundering by. A noble black stallion led them, and as he ran with beautiful stride, he curved his fine head backward to look at us, and whistled his wild challenge. Later a herd of large, white-tailed deer trooped up the hollow. The Navajo grew much excited and wanted me to shoot, and when Emmett told him we had not come out to kill, he looked dumbfounded. Even the Indian felt that a strange departure from the usual mode of hunting to travel and climb hundreds of miles over hot desert and rock-ribbed canyons, to camp at last in a spot so wild that deer were tame as cattle, and then not kill. Nothing could have pleased me better. 
incident to the settling into permanent camp. The wild horses and tame deer added the all-satisfying touch to the background of forest, flowers, and mighty pines and sunlit patches of grass. The white tents and red blankets, the sleeping hounds and blazing fire logs, all making a picture like that of a hunter's dream. "'Come, saddle up,' called the never-restful Jones. "'Leave the Indian in camp with the hounds, and we'll get the lay of the land.' All afternoon we spent riding the plateau. What a wonderful place! We were completely bewildered with its physical properties, and surprised at the abundance of wild horses and mustangs, deer, coyote, foxes, grouse, and other birds, and overjoyed to find innumerable lion trails. When we returned to camp, I drew a rough map, which Jones lay flat on the ground as he called us around him. Now, boys, let's get our heads together. In shape, the plateau resembled the ace of clubs. The center and side wings were high and well-wooded with heavy pines. The middle wing was longest, sloped west, had no pine, but a dense growth of cedar. Numerous ridges and canyons cut up the central wing. Middle Canyon, the longest and deepest, bisected the plateau, headed near camp, and ran parallel with two smaller ones, which we named Right and Left Canyons. These three were lion runways, and hundreds of deer carcasses lined the thickets. North Hollow was the only depression, as well as runway, on the northwest rim. West Point formed the extreme western cape of the plateau. To the left of West Point was a deep cut-in of the rim wall, called the Bay. The three important canyons opened into it. From the Bay, the south rim was regular and impassable all the way round to the narrow saddle, "'which connected it to the mainland. "'Now then,' said Jones, "'when we assured him that we were pretty well informed "'as to the important features, "'you can readily see our advantage. "'The plateau is about nine or ten miles long "'and six wide at its widest. "'We can't get lost, at least for long. "'We know where lions can go over the rim "'and we'll head them off, "'make short-cut chases, "'something new in lion hunting.' We are positive the lions cannot get over the second wall except where we came up at the saddle. In regard to lion signs, I'm doubtful of the evidence of my own eyes. This is virgin ground. No white man or Indian has ever hunted lions here. We've stumbled on a lion home, the breeding place of hundreds of lions that infest the north rim of the canyon. The old plainsman struck a big fist into the palm of his hand, a rare action with him. Jim lifted his broad hat and ran his fingers through his white hair. In Emmett's clear desert eagle eyes shone a furtive, anxious look, which yet could not overshadow the smoldering fire. "'If only we don't kill the horses,' he said. More than anything else, that remark from such a man thrilled me with its subtle suggestion. He loved those beautiful horses. What wild rise he saw in his mind's eye! In cold calculation, we perceived the wonderful possibilities never before experienced by hunters, and as the wild spell clutched us, my last bar of restraint let down. During supper, we talked incessantly, and afterward around the campfire. Twilight fell with the dark shadows sweeping under the silent pines. The night wind rose and began its moan. "'Sure there's some scent on the wind,' said Jim, 
lighting his pipe with a red ember. See how uneasy Don is? The hound raised his fine, dark head and repeatedly sniffed the air, then walked to and fro as if on guard for his pack. Mose ground his teeth on a bone and growled at one of the pups. Sounder was sleepy, but he watched Don with suspicious eyes. The other hounds, mature and somber, lay stretched before the fire. "'Tie them up, Jim,' said Jones, "'and let's turn in.' "'We'll return with Chapter 2, right after these sponsor messages.' "'And now, Chapter 2 of Zane Gray's Roping Lines in the Grand Canyon.' When I awakened next morning, the sound of Emmett's axe rang out sharply. Little streaks of light from the campfire played between the flaps of the tent. I saw old Mose get up and stretch himself. A jangle of cowbells from the forest told me we would not have to wait for the horses that morning. "'The engine's all right,' Jones remarked to Emmett. "'All rustle for breakfast,' called Jim. We ate in the semi-darkness with the gray shadow ever brightening. Dawn broke as we saddled our horses. The pups were limber and ran to and fro on their chains, scenting the air. The older hounds stood quietly waiting. "'Come on, Navy! Come chase Coogie!' said Emmett. "'Damn! No!' replied the Indian. "'Let him keep camp,' suggested Jim. "'All right, but he'll eat us out,' Emmett declared. "'Climb up, you fellows,' said Jones impatiently. "'Have I got everything? Rope, chains, collars, wire, nippers?' "'Yep, all right. Here, you lazy dogs. Out of this!' We rode abreast down the ridge. The demeanor of the hounds contrasted sharply with what it had been at the start of the hunt the year before. Then they had been eager, uncertain, violent. They did not know what was in the air. Now they filed after dawn in an orderly trot. We struck out of the pines at half-past five. Floating mist hid the lower end of the plateau. The morning had a cool touch, but there was no frost. Crossing Middle Canyon about halfway down, we jogged on. Cedar trees began to show bright green against the soft gray sage. We were nearing the dark line of the cedar forest when Jim, who led, held up his hands in a warning check. We closed in around him. "'Watch Don,' he said. The hound stood stiff, head well up, nose working, and the hair on his back bristling. All the other hounds whined and kept close to him. Don sense a lion, whispered Jim. I've never known him to do that unless there was the scent of a lion on the wind. Hunt him up, Don, old boy, called Jones. The pack commenced to work back and forth along the ridge. We neared a hollow when Don barked eagerly. "'Sounder answered, and likewise Jude. "'Moses' short, angry, bow-wow, "'showed the old gladiator to be in line. "'Ranger's gone,' cried Jim. "'He was farthest ahead. "'I'll bet he struck it. "'We'll know in a minute, for we're close.' "'The hounds were tearing through the sage, "'working harder and harder, "'calling and answering one another, "'all the time getting down into the hollow. "'Don suddenly let out a string of yelps, I saw him, running head up, pass into the cedars like a yellow dart. Sounder held his deep, full bay and led the rest of the pack up the slope in angry clamor. They're off, yelled Jim, and so were we. 
"'In less than a minute we had lost one another. "'Crashings among the dry cedars. "'Thud of hooves and yells kept me going in one direction. "'The fiery burst of the hounds had surprised me. "'I remembered that Jim had said Emmett and his charger "'might keep the pack in sight, "'but that none of the rest of us could. "'It didn't take me long to realize what my Mustang was made of. "'His name was Foxy, which suited him well. "'He carried me at a fast pace on the trail of someone.' "'and he seemed to know that by keeping in this trail "'part of the work of breaking through the brush "'was already done for him. "'Nevertheless, the sharp dead branches, "'more numerous in a cedar forest than elsewhere, "'struck and stung us as we passed. "'We climbed a ridge "'and found the cedars thinning out into open patches. "'Then we faced a bare slope of sage, "'and I saw Emmett below on his big horse. "'Foxy bolted down this slope, "'hurtling the bunches of sage, "'and showing the speed of which Emmett had boasted.' The open ground, with its brush, rock, and gullies, was easy going for the little Mustang. I heard nothing save the wind singing in my ears. Emmett's trail, plain in the yellow ground, showed me the way. On entering the cedars again, I pulled Foxy in and stopped twice to yell, Wahoo! I heard the baying of the hounds, but no answer to my signal. Then I attended to the stern business of catching up. For what seemed like a long time, I threaded the maze of cedar, galloped the open sage flats, always on Emmett's track. A signal cry, sharp to the right, turned me. I answered, and with the exchange of signal cries, found my way into an open glade where Jones and Jim awaited me. "'Here's one,' said Jim. "'Emmett must be with the hounds. Listen.' With the labored breathing of the horses filling our ears, we could hear no other sound. Dismounting, I went aside and turned my ear to the breeze. "'I hear Don,' I cried instantly. "'Which way?' both men asked. "'West.' "'Strange,' said Jones. "'The hound wouldn't split. Would he, Jim?' "'Don, Don leave that hot trail?' "'Sure he wouldn't,' replied Jim. "'But his running do seem queer this morning.' "'The breeze is freshening,' I said. "'There, listen.' "'Don, and Sounder, too.' "'The baying came closer and closer. "'Our horses threw up long ears. "'It was hard to sit still and wait. "'At a quick cry from Jim, "'we saw Don cross the lower end of the flat. "'No need to spur our mounts. "'The lifting of bridles served. "'Away we raced. "'Foxy passed the others in short order. "'Don had long disappeared, "'but with blended bays, Jude, Mose and Sounder broke out of the cedars hot on the trail. They, too, were out of sight in a moment. The crash of breaking brush and thunder of hoofs from where the hounds had come out of the forest attracted and even frightened me. I saw the green of a low cedar tree shake and split to let out a huge, gaunt horse with a big man doubled over his saddle. The onslaught of Emmett and his desert charger stirred a fear in me that checked admiration. "'Hounds running wild!' he yelled, and the dark shadows of the cedars claimed him again. A hundred yards within the forest we came again upon Emmett, dismounted, searching the ground. Mose and Sounder were with him, apparently at fault. Suddenly Mose left the little glade and, venting his sullen, quick bark, disappeared under the trees. Sounder sat on his haunches and yelped. "'Now what the hell is wrong?' growled Jones. "'tumbling off his saddle. "'Sure something is,' 
said Jim, also dismounting. "'Here's a lion track,' interposed Emmett. "'Ha! Yeah, and here's another,' cried Jones, in great satisfaction. "'That's the trail we were on, and here's another crossing it at right angles. "'Both are fresh. One is in fifteen minutes old. "'Don and Jude are split one way, and Moe's another. "'By, George, that's great of Sounder to hang fire.' "'Put him on the fresh trail,' said Jim, bolting into the saddle. "'Jones complied, with the result that we saw Sounder start off on the trail Mose had taken. "'All of us got in some pretty hard riding, and managed to stay within earshot of Sounder. "'We crossed a canyon, and presently reached another, which, from its depth, must have been Middle Canyon. "'Sounder did not climb the opposite slope, so we followed the rim. "'From a bare ridge we distinguished a line of pines above us, "'and decided that our location was in about the center of the plateau.' "'Very little time elapsed before we heard Mose. "'Sounder had caught up with him. "'We came to a halt where the canyon widened "'and was not so deep, "'with cliffs and cedars opposite us, "'and an easy slope leading down. "'Sounder bayed incessantly. "'Mose emitted harsh, eager howls, "'and both hounds, in plain sight, "'began working in circles. "'The lion's gone up somewhere!' "'cried Jim. "'Look sharp!' Repeatedly, Mose worked to the edge of a low wall of stone and looked over. Then he barked and ran back to the slope, only to return. When I saw him slide down a steep place, make for the bottom of the stone wall, and jump into the low branches of a cedar, I knew where to look. Then I descried the lion, a round yellow ball, cunningly curled up in a mass of dark branches. He had leaped into the tree from the wall. "'There he is! Treed!' I yelled. "'Moses found him.' "'Down, boys, down into the canyon,' shouted Jones, in sharp voice. "'Make a racket. We don't want him to jump.' "'How he and Jim and Emmett rolled and cracked that stone. "'For a moment I couldn't get off my horse. "'I was chained to my saddle by a strange vacillation "'that could have been no other thing than fear.' "'Are you afraid?' called Jones from below. "'Yes, but I am coming,' I replied and dismounted to plunge down the hill. It may have been shame or anger that dominated me then. Whatever it was, I made directly for the cedar, and did not halt until I was under the snarling lion. "'Not too close,' warned Jones. "'He might jump. It's a Tom, a two-year-old, and he's full of fight.' It didn't matter to me then whether he jumped or not. I knew I had to be cured of my dread, and the sooner it was done, the better." Old Mose had already climbed a third of the distance up to the lion. "'Yar, Mose! Out of there, you rascal coon-chaser!' Jones yelled, as he threw stones and sticks at the hound. Mose, however, replied with his snarly bark, and kept climbing. "'I gotta pull him out! Watch close, boys, and tell me if the lion starts down!' When Jones climbed the first few branches of the tree, Tom let out an ominous growl. "'Make ready to jump!' "'Sure he's coming,' called Jim. The lion, snarling viciously, started to descend. It was a ticklish moment for all of us, particularly Jones. Warily he backed down. "'Boys, maybe he's bluffing,' said Jones. "'Try him out. Grab sticks and run at the tree and yell, as if you were going in to kill him.' Not improbably, the demonstration we executed under the tree would have frightened even an African lion.' 
The lion hesitated, showed his white fangs, returned to his first perch, and from there climbed as far as he could. The forked branch on which he stood swayed alarmingly. "'Here, punch Mose out,' said Jim, handing up a long pole. The old hound hung like a leech to the tree, making it difficult to dislodge him. At length he fell heavily, and venting his thick battle cry, attempted to climb again. Jim seized him, made him fast to the rope with which Sounder had already been tied. "'Say, Emmett, I've no chance here,' called Jones. "'You try to throw at him from the rock.' Emmett ran up the rock, coiled his lasso, and cast the noose. It sailed perfectly in between the branches and circled Tom's head. Before it could be slipped tight, he had thrown it off. Then he hid behind the branches. "'I'm going further up,' said Jones. "'Be quick!' yelled Jim. Jones evidently had that in mind. When he reached the middle fork of the cedar, he stood erect and extended the noose of his lasso on the point of his pole. The lion, with a hiss and a snap, struck at it savagely. The second trial tempted the lion to saw the rope with his teeth. In a flash, Jones withdrew the pole and lifted the loop of slack rope over the lion's ears. "'Pull!' he yelled. Emmett, at the other end of the lasso, threw his great strength into action, pulling the lion out with a crash and giving the cedar such a tremendous shaking that Jones lost his footing and fell heavily. Thrilling as the moment was, I had to laugh, for Jones came up out of a cloud of dust as angry as a wet hornet and made prodigious leaps to get out of the reach of the whirling lion. "'Look out!' he bawled. Tom, certainly none the worse for his tumble, made three leaps, two at Jones, one at Jim, who was checked by the short length of the rope in Emmett's hands. Then for a moment a thick cloud of dust enveloped the wrestling lion, during which the quick-witted Jones tied the free end of the lasso to a sapling. "'Dad, gas the luck!' yelled Jones, reaching for another lasso. "'I didn't mean for you to pull him out of the tree. "'Now he'll get loose or kill himself.' "'When the dust cleared away, "'we discovered our prize stretched out at full length "'and frothing at the mouth. "'As Jones approached, "'the lion began a series of evolutions so rapid "'as to be almost indiscernible to the eye. "'I saw a wheel of dust and yellow fur. "'Then came a thud, and the lion lay inert. "'Jones pounced upon him "'and loosed the lasso round his neck.' "'I think he's done for, but maybe not. "'He's breathing yet. "'Here, help me tie his paws together. "'Look out! He's coming, too!' "'The lion stirred and raised his head. "'Jones ran the loop of the second lasso "'round the two hind paws and stretched the lion out. "'While in this helpless position, "'and with no strength and hardly any breath left in him, "'the lion was easy to handle. "'With Emmett's help, "'Jones quickly clipped the sharp claws.' tied the four paws together, took off the neck lasso, and substituted a collar and chain. "'There! That's one! He'll come to all right,' said Jones. "'But we're lucky. Emmett, never pull another lion clear out of a tree. Pull him over a limb and hang him there while someone below ropes his hind paws. That's the only way. And if we don't stick to it, somebody's going to get killed. Come now!' We'll leave this fellow here and hunt up Don and Jude. They've treated another lion by this time. Remarkable to me was to see how, as soon as the lion lay helpless, Sounder lost his interest. Mose growled, yet readily left the spot. Before we reached the level, both hounds had disappeared. 
"'Hear that?' yelled Jones, digging spurs into his horse. "'Hi, hi!' From the cedars rang the thrilling, bleeding chorus of bays that told of a treed lion. The forest was almost impenetrable. We had to pick our way. Emmett forged ahead. We heard him smashing the dead wood, and soon a yell proclaimed the truth of Jones' assertion. First I saw the men looking upward, then Mose climbing the cedar, and the other hounds with noses skyward, and last, in the dead top of the tree, a dark blot against the blue, a big, tawny lion. A yell leaped past my lips. Quiet Jim was yelling, and Emmett, silent man of the desert, let from his wide cavernous chest a booming roar that drowned ours. Jones' next decisive action turned us from exultation to the grim business of the thing. He pulled Mose out of the cedar, and while he climbed up, Emmett ran his rope under the collars of all the hounds. Quick as the idea flashed over me, I leaped into the cedar adjoining the one Jones was in, and went up hand over hand. A few pulls brought me to the top, and then my blood ran hot and quick, for I was level with the lion, too close for comfort, but in excellent position for taking pictures. The lion, not heeding me, peered down at Jones, between widespread paws. I could hear nothing except the hounds. Jones's gray hat came pushing up between the dead snags, then his burly shoulders. The quivering muscles of the lion gathered tense, and his little body crouched low on the branches. He was about to jump. His open, dripping jaws, his wild eyes, roving in terror for some means of escape, his tufted tail, swinging against the twigs and breaking them, manifested his extremity. The eager hounds waited below, howling, leaping. It bothered me considerably to keep my balance, regulate my camera, and watch the proceedings. Jones climbed on with his rope between his teeth and a long stick. The very next instant, it seemed to me, I heard the cracking of branches and saw the lion biting hard at the noose which circled his neck. Here I swung down, branch to branch, and dropped to the ground, for I wanted to see what went on below. Above the howls and yelps, I distinguished Jones's yell. Emmett ran directly under the lion with a spread noose in his hands. Jones pulled and pulled, but the lion held on firmly. Throwing the end of the lasso down to Jim, Jones yelled again, and then they both pulled. The lion was too strong. Suddenly, however, the branch broke, letting the lion fall, kicking frantically with all four paws. Emmett grasped one of the four whipping paws, and even as the powerful animal sent him staggering, he dexterously left the noose fast on the paw. Jim and Jones in unison let go of their lasso, which streaked up to the branches as the lion fell, and then it dropped to the ground, where Jim made a flying grab for it. Jones, plunging out of the tree, fell upon the rope at the same instant. If the action up to then had been fast, it was slow to what followed. It seemed impossible for two strong men with one lasso, and a giant with another, to straighten out that lion. He was all over the little space under the trees at once. The dust flew, the stick snapped, the gravel pattered like shot against the cedars. Jones plowed the ground flat on his stomach, holding on with one hand, while the other trying to fasten the rope to something. Jim went to his knees, and on the other side of the lion, Emmett's huge bulk tipped a sharp angle, and then fell. I shouted and ran forward, having no idea what to do, but Emmett rolled backward at the same instant the other men got a strong haul on the lion. 
Short as that moment was in in which the lasso slackened, it sufficed for Jones to make the rope fast to a tree. Whereupon, with the three men pulling on the other side of the leaping lion, somehow I had flashed into my mind the game the children play, called skipping the rope, for the lion and lasso shot up and down. This lasted for only a few seconds. They stretched the beast from tree to tree, and Jones, running with the third lasso, made fast the front paws. "'It's a female,' said Jones, as the lion lay helpless, her sides swelling. "'A good-sized female. She's nearly eight feet from tip to tip, but not very heavy. Hand me another rope.' When all four lassos had been stretched, the lioness could not move. Jones strapped a collar round her neck and clipped the sharp yellow claws. "'Now to muzzle her,' he continued." Jones' method of performing this most hazardous part of the work was characteristic of him. He thrust a stick between her open jaws, and when she crushed it to splinters, he tried another, and yet another, until he found one that she couldn't break. Then while she bit on it, he placed a wire loop over her nose, slowly tightening it, leaving the stick back of her big canines. The hounds ceased their yelping and went untied. Sounder wagged his tail as if to say, "'Well done!' "'and then lay down. "'Don walked within three feet of the lion, "'as if she were now beneath his dignity. "'Jude began to nurse and lick her sore paw. "'Only Mose the incorrigible "'retained antipathy for the captive, "'and he growled, as always, low and deep. "'And on the moment, Ranger, "'dusty and lame from travel, "'trotted wearily into the glade, "'and looking at the lioness, "'gave one disgusted bark and flopped down.' And in the book, by the way, Zane Gray did get up that tree and does provide pictures of that lion a few feet away from him. Join us next week for chapters three and four of Roping the Lions in the Grand Canyon by Zane Gray. If you enjoy our story, please do take a moment and send us a kind review. And I'll add early at this point, Zane Gray was very big on catch and release and was a big proponent of preserving all wildlife, fish and game. Thanks for joining us, and by the way, Tales of the Texas Rangers will appear this Wednesday, and every Wednesday going forward, as long as we have episodes. That's all for today, everyone. Thanks for joining us. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories from the Old West, and we'll be back soon.